Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Our guest today is Carol Faulkner, Professor of History at Syracuse University. Her book, Lucretia Mott's Heresy, Abolition and Women's Rights in 19th Century America, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. Faulkner has provided a beautiful biography of the abolitionist and Quaker Lucretia Mott. Committed to liberty and equality based on the divine light within, Mott was one of the earliest American activists for immediate emancipation and, by extension, the full rights of women. Faulkner argues that Mott has been cast as a demure religious matron rather than the radical firebrand that she was. Partly, this is due to Mott not having left many of her thoughts in writing, expressing herself primarily through long, extemporaneous speeches. Faulkner corrects for this by providing vivid details of Mott's life and takes her through the Nantucket childhood and time at Nine Partners Boarding School, where she received the best education of the era. Her joining the Hittite movement, collaborations with William Lloyd Garrison in the founding of the interracial Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, and her connections with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and women's rights. Mott considered herself a heretic, rejecting dogma, church authority, and the preeminence of scripture for an ethic pacifism, individual liberty, and radical equality. Her theological views are brought into sharp relief against the backdrop of multiple schisms within Quakerism and anti-slavery. Rather than a frail and domestic mott, Faulkner offers a courageous ideologue unafraid to risk her own safety in defense of principle, committed to moral suasion, immediate emancipation, and vilified for her disruptive outspokenness. Here is my conversation with Carol Faulkner. Now let me introduce you to the author, Carol Faulkner. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book, Lucretia Mott's Heresy, is a provocative portrait of Mott. And so today I want to explore with you what makes her what you call a cipher in American history. But first, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to write Mott's biography. Sure. Well, I'm a professor at Syracuse University, a professor of history, and my previous work has been on women's activism in the Freedmen's Aid movement, in the anti-slavery movement, and I actually had the opportunity to work on a volume of Mott's letters after graduate school. And it was when I was working on Mott's letters, uh, which appeared in 2003 as the selected letters of Lucretia Coff and Mott, that I realized there hadn't been a biography of Lucretia Mott since 1980. And since 1980, of course, volumes and volumes of new research on women's history has been produced. It really came into its own as a field um, really starting in 1980 almost. Obviously, there's some important works produced before then, but the amount of research. So I really wanted to contextualize Mott in this new research. Um, and I felt, of course, as one of the most important women of the 19th century, she surely deserved more than one biography written in 1980. One thing about Mott that's really interesting is I've seen her name in countless his- histories, and she's always listed in a list of other women. Yes. But nobody ever really talks about her very much. It's always, oh, Lucretia Mott was in there, too. And uh, your book is one of the first books I've seen that actually, uh, that I've read that actually unpacks her in a really full way. 
about when we see that name, Lucretia Mott, who we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, she hasn't received as much attention as some other feminists of her time, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Right? There's been a number of books written about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in part because she's such a polarizing figure. Um, Susan B. Anthony, I think, deserves much more historical attention as well. And But I do feel like Mott is often absent, despite her centrality. Uh, you know, we know much less about her than we do about these other women. But what is, there's a reason for it, and you, you talk about why. Well, I think it's because she's a Quaker and a minister, um, and that because of that fact of her life, which is so central to her life, she has been almost, become almost saint-like, right, untouchable, but also foreign in a way, right? We don't understand her spirituality. She's not as, her ideas aren't as accessible to us as someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's much more secular. Uh, and so Mott, in, in many ways, becomes, as you said earlier, a cipher in that way because of her religious identity, but also, isn't it, um, you talk about the fact she didn't write a lot. She, most of her, she wrote letters, but she, most of her career was, was doing these speeches all over the world. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's part of being a Quaker minister, right? Is, is she was a recognized and acknowledged gifted speaker by the Society of Friends. So her calling was to speak. But Quakers only spoke when moved by the spirit. So her speeches were rarely, if ever, planned. You know, there's a couple exceptions, but um, and they were spontaneous. Right. She spoke when she felt like she had something important to say. When other reformers tried to make her speak, like schedule her to speak at a convention, she should have resisted and sometimes even delivered a, you know, not so great performance because of it. Because she just felt like, you know, she hadn't been moved to say something. She'd just been scheduled to. So as a result, the records of her speeches that we have are often newspaper reports, right? They're summaries. Um, sometimes they're written down by stenographers. Sometimes when they were published, she would review them first. You know, so her words are also often mediated by other people. And in fact, I'm actually working on a volume of Lucretia Mott's speeches and sermons um, that should uh, illuminate that tension in her public career a little bit more. And she also sort of avoided direct leadership of organizations. She was a leader, but she was more of an influencer rather than a direct leader like a CEO you would think of. Yeah, she, well, she was suspicious of organization in some ways. And that in part is because of her own experiences with first the Hicksite schism in the Society of Friends in 1827, which was um, quite painful for many members of the Society of Friends, including Lucretia Mott. Um, and also the split in the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1840, right? Many people who had formerly been her close co-workers and allies were now on an opposite, were no longer supporters of hers, at least, if not, um, they were continued to be abolitionists, but not um, colleagues. You know, so these things were very um, painful for her. And I think when it came to the women's rights movement, she often counseled against organization 
and particularly, um, especially after the Civil War, when feminists did start to form national suffrage societies, she, she kind of stayed out of them as much as she could because of this background. Okay, why don't we go back to the biography in terms of her beginning in Nantucket. Her early years there, what kind of community was that? Was it, ra- was it a radical community? Because where does she get this radicalism that we see later in the book? Because it doesn't seem to be there in Nantucket. So talk about that for the audience. I think um, she saw her interest in women's rights as originating on Nantucket, even though it was not a particularly radical community, as you say. Um, because it was in large part a female community, so many of the male members of the community were absent for long periods of time, including Lucretia's own father, Thomas Coffin, who they at one point believed was lost at sea because he was a whaling captain. And um, most of the men worked in the whaling industry on Nantucket. So when the men were gone, the women ran the meetings, they ran the businesses, they ran the island. And so, and this was, people didn't think twice about it, right? And so Mott says, you know, I just assumed that women could do these things. But at the same time, Nantucket, I think, provided a basis for her to resist because of the power of some of those female elders and the way they controlled the community. In particular, um, when Mott was a child, uh, the Nantucket meeting often disowned Quakers for marrying out of meeting, as Quakers put it. So interfaith marriages, right, was a, was a reason for disownment among Quakers. And at that point, Mott started to be suspicious of the power of Quaker elders, something that would um, carry through with her for her whole life, you know, through the Hicksite schism especially, but also in her own conflicts with Quaker elders who disagreed with some of what she um, did in the anti-slavery and women's rights movements. Um, after that, she went to Nine Partners Boarding School, which you describe as having one of the best educations of the era. What was the, what was the nature of that education? Yeah. Well, this was a co-educational school in a time when there were no co-educational schools, right? Um, it was a time when th- this was in the very early, the first decade of the 19th century, when education for women was expanding in the country, but at female seminaries. And so Quakers very early on educated women in co-educational settings. So she received the same education as as her male peers. This didn't mean it wasn't a gendered education, right? Women were taught to, you know, the skills that they needed to be um, good wives and mothers, such as sewing, and and men were taught farming and, and things like that. So it was a gendered education, but it was one of the best educations that you could receive at the time. Okay, so she go at nine partners. What? What? This is a, a period of uh, formation, intellectual, moral formation. Uh, what? What happened to her? What during that time? There were changes in her. She became a teacher at the she school. Did. She became a teacher. She met her future husband, James Mott. But 
Upon meeting him, she also realized that male and female teachers were paid unequally, that female teachers received less than the male teachers at the school. And she entered a protest of some sort of this inequality. Uh, I don't think anything came of it, but it did um, sort of force her to realize that however egalitarian the Society of Friends perceived itself to be, it still had quite a long way to go um, in making men and women be truly equal. So intellectually, what happens to her there? Is there any kind of a... Do you see that as a pivotal time? Well, she's definitely introduced to um, anti-slavery ideas at the school. Again, this is, um, I think she goes in about 1804 or 1806, and then she she's there until 1810 or 11. And um, she's introduced to um, the broader transatlantic community of Quakers, And as that community had played an important role in the abolition of the British slave trade in 1807, uh, the Atlantic slave trade in 1807, um, she's introduced to their anti-slavery ideas. Right? So the poetry of William Cowper, um, a British anti-slavery poet, um, as well as other um, kind of anti-slavery ideas. And that stays with her also. Okay, she goes from there. What happens to her next Uh, in the next chapter, you talk a lot about um, the schisms within Quakerism. Mm -hmm. And it's where at this early age, I think, is where she's beginning to, to define herself as a heretic. Mm -hmm. yeah. so what, is, what, did, what did she mean by heretic? And how did it, how was it produced by all these schisms? What were the controversies? What were the things that would cause her to identify with a what she considered a heretical kind of view. And this is theological. She's talking theologically. She, she means it theologically. She also means it in other ways as well. Socially. A rebellion against social customs, government authority, you know, injustices anywhere you might find them. Um, so she actually believes it's the response. Responsibility of activists, and this is, this is basically her words, to stand out in heresy. And she means two things by that. First, to be willing to question the accepted wisdom of society, right? That slavery is a perfectly fine institution, right? That women are inferior to men. All these sort of things that most Americans believe, she believes heretics should question. And I'll, I'll talk about Quakers in a second but also that activists must be willing to be insulted in doing so, right? They must be willing to bear the label heretic or infidel, you know, all these labels that their opponents would hurl at them to criticize them and, and, and hinder the movement um, in order to achieve their ultimate goal, the end of slavery, equality for women. And, but In many ways, even though Lucretia Mott is identified as a Quaker and she remained a member of the Society of Friends for her entire life, um, she disagreed with them on a number of issues and clashed with them very publicly, even risking disownment on a number of issues over the course of her lifetime. And so that's another way that she is a heretic, right? She disagreed with the Society of Friends. She also disagreed with 
for fellow women's rights activists and abolitionists at various points as well. But in the Society of Friends, I already mentioned sort of her criticism of the power of elders and their abuse of that power to discipline other members of the community for out marriage or, or whatever. And uh, so in the Hicksite schism, this comes to a head, right? Lucretia Mott and other followers of Elias Hicks, who's, you know, for whom the Hicksites are named, believed that the elders had become too worldly, too dependent on the Bible rather than the inner light. Um, as part of this dependence on the Bible and, um, uh, uh, and worldliness, they had become entangled with slavery, re-entangled with slavery, you might say, through business. Right. They formally had no connection to slavery. Right. They had abolished slavery. If you owned a slave and were a Quaker, you would be disowned. Right. Within the Society of Friends, slavery was abolished. But that didn't mean that wealthy Quakers didn't trade with slaveholders, engage in the cotton business, manufacturing that might benefit or um, uh, profit from slavery in some way. And. So Hicksites began questioning the power of the elders during this period, and ultimately um, this clash over really the what it meant to be a Quaker, what it meant to be an anti-slavery Quaker, resulted in a, a, a rupture in the Society of Friends. And for really, for almost the rest of the 19th century, there were two organizations, if not more organizations, of friends in the United States. Now, because they kept splitting over the course of the century. Right. One of the things that you see that starts in, Nan, in I think, in Nantucket, um, no, no, at, at the boarding school when she's at nine, uh, nine partners, is this uh, conflict between authority and individual conscience, which yeah. seems to be the thing that keeps coming up for her. It's like the theme of her life. Yeah. You know, she's she's saying no, individual conscience is more important than obeying authority. And there's people that are saying, wait a minute, authority, you ha- we have to have some kind of order here. Mm-hmm. We can't have you running around all over the place just saying whatever you want. So this, 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 this becomes, I think, the key point, does it not, in Quakerism, in terms of the debates that are happening within Quakerism that she's taking sides in. Yeah, yeah the Society of Friends... This is a struggle. This is a constant tension, really, in the Society of Friends, right? It's a religion based on the inward light, that the, the, the idea that all individuals, no matter what their background or their status in society, have direct access to God, right, and what God wants, and that if they are attuned to this inward light, then they will um, be able to follow a holy, a holy path through life. At the same time, the Society of Friends is an organized religion. Although they don't have a formal ministry, they do have a hierarchy. Um, They have divisions between men's and women's meetings. They have different committees working on different aspects of the religion. And so they believe in the individual conscience. And um, really, the Lucretia Mott thinks that they should believe in that the individual conscience is more important than any other aspect of the religion. But at the same time, as you know, it's the responsibility of the elders to make sure that Quakers are, you know, not going off on some crazy tangent, right? And what this crazy tangent might be depends on, you know, 
who the person is who's observing the crazy tangents. Right. It has to do with the, what are the boundaries of Quakerism. Exactly. Uh, you know, how, how far do you go with individual conscience and still have a Quaker? Yeah. Uh, then she meets, I think, uh, the, uh, one of the key points in her life is when she meets William Garrison, Lloyd Garrison, and gets involved and really gets involved big time in the anti-slavery uh, movement. Talk about that a little bit and what happened there. Yeah, I guess I would phrase it a little differently. I would say That's fine. In William Lloyd Garrison's life is when he meets Lucretia Mott. Um, and because she is really more of an abolitionist earlier on than he is, right? When she, when he meets Lucretia Mott, he has really, you know, he's recently been jailed in Baltimore. He's been working with Benjamin Lundy. But she's been speaking out against slavery, you know, really since the early 1820s. Um, and he, they, they complement each other because he's more of a writer. She's more of a speaker. And so she actually helps him become a better public speaker so he can give fiery speeches against slavery. You know, when, he, when she, she first meets William Lloyd Garrison, he gives a speech in Philadelphia and he's got like the page plastered to his face. You know, he's reading directly from it. So she has to give him some tips on public speaking, basically. Um, and then when um, the founding convention of uh, the American Anti-Slavery Society occurs in Philadelphia in 1833, Mott is present, you know, not as a formal delegate, but um, she's there and she participates in um, the discussions of the convention. Now, she uh, Garrison at this point was when she first meets him, he was a uh, believed in colonization uh, project of taking Afri- uh, slaves and putting them somewhere. Well, he's he's moving away from that position already when he meets, I think, when he meets Lucretia Mott. Um, but she's never had that position. She's never been a colonizationist, unlike many white abolitionists. That's not something that she rejects um, or has to move away from. Right. So in a way, uh, she's she's like you, you I agree with you. She was uh, ahead of him in terms of her radicalism. Now, she, she's already experienced all these schisms with Quakerism, and now she's dealing with abolitionists and anti-slavery and all the positions in between. Uh, so there's a lot of schism within this whole realm of abolishing slavery uh, that she's dealing with, too. Yeah. So talk about the, those different positions and where she falls in all that. Yeah. I mean... Uh, she, to me, is, um, you know, and I say this in the book, she's more Garrisonian than Garrison himself. So from the founding meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society, she really stays true to the position set out in the founding documents, right? That we are going to be at war with slavery, but we will not use carnal weapons, right? We will use moral weapons. And she... Um, remains sort of committed to moral suasion as a means to end slavery, you know, from that moment, you know, through the end of the Civil War in a way that other abolitionists do not. So she really becomes invested in that the American Anti-Slavery Society Declaration of Sentiments in non-resistance, in moral suasion. Okay, what does she base that on? Because if you look at all around her, there's just so much, the slave trade is huge. There's so much slavery. Is she expecting that people are going to go, oh, you're right, Lucretia, I'm going to 
let go of my slaves and everyone will do the same thing and then society will be changed is it sort of does she be, because she believes actually that people at somewhere fundamentally are good and that they she, and they need to be just sort of uh prodded yeah she doesn't believe in original sin that's for sure she right. doesn't you know she doesn't believe in human depravity and that's one of her criticisms of religion um, in the 19th century, is that they believe in, that humans are fundamentally sinners. So she's an optimist as well, and she does believe that she can change people's minds. And I would say she's very confrontational. If she meets a slaveholder on a train, or when she's traveling in England, or when she's traveling through Virginia or Kentucky or wherever she happens to be, she has no problem getting into a debate about slavery, right? And I think she does that more so than other abolitionists who, you know, for some of them, like William Lloyd Garrison, it's too dangerous for them to travel in the South, right? For someone like Frederick Douglass, he really cannot go to the South, um, and she can in a way that these other abolitionists cannot uh, because of her womanhood, because of her whiteness, but she's very confrontational. Robert Purvis, um, the Philadelphia abolitionist, calls her the most belligerent non-resistant he's ever met. Right. And so she's just willing to get in repeated fights about slavery with people. Um, and she is often very persuasive. You know, these slaveholders, they basically give in. They probably don't want to be badgered by Lucretia Mott anymore. But usually at the end of their of their interactions, they're like, oh, I agree. I agree. Slavery's wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> Please stop talking to me. <laughs> okay, so, but she, and what's interesting about this is she was a very small woman. She was very delicate, small woman. So she was not this tall, powerful figure. And so maybe that's why she was able to get away with a lot of that, because people didn't expect that she, this little package would have all this dynamite in it. Yeah, she's under five feet, and she weighs about 90 pounds. So she's very petite. Um, and she, you know, she's always dressed like a Quaker. You know, she's not particularly fashion forward. She, she's wearing basically the same outfit in every picture, the Quaker bonnet, the shawl, right, the, the gray dress. Um, and so I think you're right. People don't expect um, this, this petite little woman to be quite as forceful as she is. Now, she gets involved in the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. Yes, that organization is founded almost immediately after the American Anti-Slavery Society. The women sort of proceed from that meeting to the to form the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And that was interesting to me because it was a segregated society for women. Women could work for uh, against slavery in that organization, but that was which is kind of interesting because there were people uh, like Lydia Child who said we shouldn't have a separate segregated organization for women. Why do we have this separation? And she, um, Mott, it's kind of interesting how she, how does she justify that? Because she doesn't believe in, um, you know, segregation of the sexes. And here she is involved in this very segregated society, which seems to be, to me, more about the women than it is about slavery even though that's their cause, but it's about something else going on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, this is, the, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society is the longest-lived female anti-slavery society in the country. 
it, it lasts until 1870, so from 1833 until 1870. It's interracial for all, I think that's 37 years, 36 years. Um, and that in itself is an achievement, it seems to me. Um, when other um, um, organizations faltered over racial divisions, they faltered over, you know, what, how should men and women work on this cause? Um, and I think, um, I guess I, I disagree with you that it wasn't about, it was, wasn't about slavery. I mean, I think that was what brought the women together and kept them together. And I think it was not only slavery, but their opposition to racial prejudice that kept them together as well. Was it also that um, there were women in the anti-slavery movement who were not really comfortable uh, with the uh, the women's rights uh, agenda fully? And were they uh, more comfortable working with other women on this cause? They didn't want to have to compete with men or, you know, speak in mixed audiences? And did it give them a, a private, a, a more private space for them to do their work? I think that was definitely true of some women in the anti-slavery right. movement, but not necessarily the women in the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. You know, I don't think they did it because they felt uncomfortable working with men. Many of them went on to take official positions in the um, Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, in the American Anti-Slavery Society. Um, so I don't know that it was that. I think that they believed that they had a specific role to play um, as women, and that, that potentially they could play it better um, on their own without the interference of men. Um, you know, hiring lectures, raising funds, um, uh, you know, and, and generally propagandizing for the cause. Were they in any ways like patterned after like, or maybe missionary societies were patterned after these th- this, um, you know, the idea that women would get together and raise money and educate, do think that are really traditional things that women kind of done, had done already, uh, educating, you know, people. Yeah, that's true. I, I definitely think that's true that they, I mean, in the, in the anti-slavery movement, a lot of it's fundraising, right? And this is true in the missionary movement as well, is that a lot of the fundraising is done by women. And, uh, Sorry, I just lost my train of no, thought. No, it's okay. Um, how, did, well, how was it different from the, the American Anti-Slavery Society? Oh, I remember what I was going to say. It, it, they had a relationship with the American Anti-Slavery Society. They were, you know, I would say not a formal subsidiary like the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, but they would forward their reports to the National Anti-Slavery Standard, you know, they, they had a strong relationship. And one of the things that they were willing to do was to push women's participation in the movement in different ways. And so just two examples of this. The first is when Angelina Grimke first becomes a lecturer for the American Anti-Slavery Society, and she's the first women woman to have that position, even though it's unpaid, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society writes a letter to other female anti-slavery societies and to other um, abolitionists that they know saying, you know, please welcome Angelina Grimke, right? 
we totally support her speaking as a woman on the issue of slavery, right? And that's sort of paving the way for her to do that. And then the other way is, even though they're a female society, just being racially mixed is scandalous in the 19th century. That was another thing that I just forgot to ask you about, this, this racial element yeah. here. Yeah. Fascinating. So when they would put on public events, and probably the most famous is when they helped organize the Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women in Philadelphia in 1838, and a mob burns down Pennsylvania Hall where the women are meeting, um, that, you know, a lot of the... Uh, ideas that riled up the mob were about racial mixing, right? There's there's a black man and a white woman sitting next to each other, right? There's been an interracial marriage. And so they sort of very publicly said, we are going to be interracial in the face of scandal. Um, And mostly they did this, you know, as women rather than as men and women, but um, they were certainly willing to invite African-American male speakers and, and promote those events um, as well. Uh, well, on the chapter on the Pennsylvania Hall uh, event, there was an event where, I mean, the hall gets burned down by the mob. <laughs> but there's an event where the white women are walking out with the black women arm yeah. in arm in order to protect them. The white women can use their white femininity to protect the black women. Yeah. I thought that that was a very poignant scene. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of what set that up? Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, I mean, I think one of the things that holds the Philadelphia female anti-slavery together is their examination, their continued examination of their own racial views, right, and their own fears um, about race in America, and that this was a discussion members continually had with each other. And so they knew, the white members knew, that the black members were more vulnerable to assault, to attack, than they were, um, and that they could do something about this by standing with them publicly. And this is what happened when the hall was basically on fire and, you know, being besieged by... um, things that uh, in this instance to protect our colleagues in the movement. Okay, the, the next thing I would want to go on to is when she goes to the, the World Anti-Slavery Convention and she meets, or Elizabeth Stanton actually meets Mott, like you said, uh, Mott was ahead of Stanton at this point. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about that convention and uh, Mott's influence there. Yeah. Well, that convention is sort of legendary in the history of women's rights because it, you know, set the site, um, was the site for the meeting of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. And Stanton described Lucretia Mott as a revelation of womanhood, right? Here is this woman who's just willing to be to fearless stand up to opposition, say whatever she wants to say, you know, do so quite publicly into large audiences, as she did throughout her time in Great Britain. But in the history of the women's rights movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, of course, 
remembered that the exclusion of women from formal participation in the world's anti-slavery convention was what sparked her decision, you know, in conversation with Mott to hold a women's rights convention upon their return to the United States. Uh, but although Stanton remembers that conversation in retrospect, there's not actual an actual record of that conversation from the time, right? Mott doesn't mention it in her diary. This is the only time Mott ever kept a diary. Um, and so I think it indicates that Mott was sort of used to this kind of exclusion, right? The, the split in the anti-slavery movement was ongoing, right? She was perfectly willing to, to be there and battle for women's participation, but she was there as an abolitionist. The most important reason for her to be there is to talk about slavery, to meet other abolitionists from all over the world. So women's rights is not her primary agenda. Um, and so when she sits behind the bar, um, you know, she she does so with other abolitionists separated from the main debates of the convention. But she's keeping track of them. She's writing about what's talked about at the convention. And when she can speak at venues outside the convention, she does, you know, she takes every opportunity to do so and to speak about slavery. And, you know, the convention delegates often welcome her, her public remarks on this, on this issue. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. Okay. We've just explored all this active public life, but at the same time, she's having children. How many children she has? Five children. Yeah. Um, she has six children, but one dies it's, uh, in, when he's a toddler. Okay, so she's she's got a heavy domestic duty. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. How does she do that? Well, she marries very young, right? She marries when she's eighteen, and she has her um, first child, a daughter, sixteen months later. She has her last child in 1828, so 17 years after she's been married. Right, So her children have a wide age difference. Um, the older children help take care of the younger children. Her mother is alive until 1844 and helps her take care of the children. Um, so she... Uh, she also has domestic servants at, you know, various times in her, in her life, though not a governess per se, you know, cooks and, and, um, other kinds of servants. Um, so she, um, does not feel, I don't think, the pressures of motherhood in a way that other women might as sort of, um, you know, when her granddaughter writes, a biography of her grandparents, James and Lucretia Mott. She says, you know, Lucretia Mott was able to fulfill her role as a wife and mother, you know, and her public life never detracted from it. But in many ways, I think Lucretia actually had it fairly easy. She had an incredibly supportive family. She traveled all the time, you know, so... Children did not really keep her down in any way. And this traveling was like weeks and months. It wasn't like you get on a jet plane and, you know, you're back in two days. Yeah, definitely. And what about her marriage to James uh, Mott? What was his what was his relationship to the to the movement? How active was he uh, or, you know, his support of her of the movement? What did he do? Because that that probably had a very big uh, influence effect on how, how much she was able to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like to call him the greatest husband ever. You know, he's basically... He, sound, uh, he's, he read like he was. Yeah. <laughs> he um, He's very supportive of her. You know, he's very supportive of her career as a minister. He's very supportive of her um, involvement in the anti-slavery and women's rights movement. Of course, he attends the founding meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society and, and signs the Declaration of Sentiments, right? So he's an abolitionist from early on as well. He also, of course, very famously chairs the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention on the first day um, uh, before they... Um, uh, did the women just take control and decide that they don't need men to chair their conventions? So he's very much a feminist and an abolitionist as well as Lucretia. He's just not as much of a, he's a little bit more reserved and shy. And as Lucretia says, he doesn't like to be the center of attention. So she becomes the center of attention for both of them. <laughs> Okay, so we go on here. She's uh, very involved in anti-slavery and then, uh, abolition, not anti-slavery, but abolition, radical abolition. And she takes positions that others find rather odd, uh, or such as not purchasing slaves, uh, not buying their freedom from slave owners, uh, the whole issue of, of sheltering fugitive slaves, she says, yeah, okay, but that's not really what we're about. Um, talk about some of the, the uh, some of those controversial, uh, t- maybe she would call them tangential, you know, they're just on the side. They're not the real issue. And she's a purist, mm-hmm. ideologically. Yeah. Talk about some of the things that she opposed and why. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I said, she really is invested in the ideas set forth in the, the American Anti-Slavery Society's Declaration of Sentiments, and she is quite rigid about them. Um, she is a purist about moral suasion. I mean, she believes the ultimate goal of all abolitionists, regardless of what they determine their favorite branch of the cause, the ultimate goal is abolishing slavery, right? And that should always be at the forefront of what abolitionists are trying to do, regardless of whether they're involved in the Underground Railroad or free produce, which is a cause that was very important to Mott. And so, you know, she recognizes that people are going to seize on their different kinds of activism, their favorite branch of the movement, but it shouldn't detract from abolishing slavery. And so when she, but when she saw people veering away from what she believed the core values of abolition were, um, she you know, would get into debates about them. And, you know, one such thing was um, purchasing the freedom of slaves. So when British abolitionists purchased the freedom of slaves, um, purchased the freedom of Frederick Douglass, rather, specifically, she spoke out against it. She was not alone in speaking out against it. But she believed that basically this is an acknowledgement if you are buying a person in order to free them, you're still acknowledging that they are in some ways property belonging to someone else. She did not want any part of that system. And she also thought, didn't she think that Douglas was better, could be a better uh, advocate for against slavery if he was a slave, if, if he remained a slave? Yeah, it's a very cold-hearted position in many ways, right? It's just that, that Douglas would be better for the movement if he was still a slave. And that, I think, is... 
you know, there you see sort of the limits of her rigidity, of, yeah. and also her sort of strategic value to the movement, right? That that being a purist is not necessarily being practical or political or even necessarily sensitive um, to the needs of others. It seemed like she put uh, principle above any uh, individual consideration. Yes. Not willing to make exceptions. Yeah. And there were some areas there that just seemed so cold. Yeah. Some of the things she you know, People would literally, like, you would have, you know, a man would appear at a Pennsylvania anti-slavery convention trying to raise money to buy his child. And she'd be like, no, we shouldn't contribute. You know, so <laughs> Which it, is just, <laughs> you know, it, it's very uh, sort of mind-boggling, you know. But she believed, you know, African-Americans should free themselves, right, that they, that they should flee slavery, that they should do, you know, everything they could to, to escape it and avoid it, but not acknowledge they were property in doing so, right? which is not a very practical way to address slavery. <laughs> no, that's true. And anyway, so here we go. Uh, there were some other issues, I think, that came up right before the Civil War and then right after the Civil War. How did the Civil War impact her ideas? And what was there was a transition there, of course, to more focus on women's rights. Um, so talk a little bit about that, that Civil War period. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it first comes up probably with with John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, right? This issue of, and and also with you know the Fugitive Slave Act and various responses to the Fugitive Slave Act, which is there's some instances where force might be more valuable, right, um, to the movement. And you know, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Mary Ann Brown, his wife, stays at her house. She and the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society basically pass resolutions endorsing his motivations, but not his actions, right? We understand why he did it. We fully support that view of slavery, but we cannot endorse the use of, of violence to do so. You know, so they're, they're, it's a struggle in many ways to sort of accept this, this new intensification of the, the clash over slavery and how they will adjust their principles. Um, but at the same time, when, for example, a slave named Jane Johnson um, escapes from slavery in Philadelphia, Mott and Jane Johnson and an armed guard um, are all together in the carriage fleeing the, the, um, uh, fleeing the courthouse, you know, getting her to safety. Um, and so... You know, she's around guns all the time. Her, Robert Purvis, who's her um, uh, one of her closest friends in the anti-slavery movement, owns a gun. You know, so she acknowledges the need for self-defense and protection in many ways, um, but she doesn't believe in um, uh, using physical force herself. And in the Civil War, uh, she does not support the violence, right? She does not ever endorse the war effort publicly. You know, she accepts that it's ending slavery, but she um, thinks that essentially the blood of the Civil War is uh, atonement for the sin of slavery. Interesting. 
that, that slavery actually begets the violence, the violence of slavery begets the violence of the civil, civil war, that both things are violent institutions, slavery and war, and that's why you have to oppose them with uh, non-resistance, with a moral stance. So what happens after the Civil War with the female anti-slavery society? And uh, there's still issues. Uh, slaves have been declared free, but many are still not free in actuality. What, what are her? How does she deal with that? Because it's like the nation is saying they're free, but it's not happening in a real intangible ways for a lot of uh, slaves. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, William Lloyd Garrison in 1865 retires from the American Anti-Slavery Society, right? He says, our work is done, right? Slavery is abolished, but other abolitionists continue the American Anti-Slavery Society. And in particular, they make it their goal to um, pass the 15th, to get, a, you know, get African-American men the right to vote when it becomes the 15th Amendment, to pass the 15th Amendment. And so the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society joins in that effort. They say, our goal now is going to be um, to pass this amendment. They also work on other issues, um, interestingly, also in the Philadelphia area about, you know, continue to be concerned with racial prejudice. And so one of the causes that they're concerned about from 1865 to 1870 is segregation on Philadelphia streetcars. Um, so this is a cause that they're very passionate about um, and, and engage in. Okay, so so here is Maud after the Civil War, and the, the, the suffrage movement is beginning to uh, take off now, especially with the passage of these amendments that give black men the vote. How, how does she fit now with this? She's older. How old is she at this time? Well, uh, in 18, let's see, she dies in 1880 at the age of um, 87. So in 1870, she's in her late 60s. Mm -hmm. Is that right? No, late 70s. So what is her role going to, what is her role there at the end of her life with women's suffrage and how is she viewed and what is her contribution at that point? Well, after the Civil War, feminists organized the American Equal Rights Association. And the goal of that organization is to work for both black male suffrage and woman suffrage. So essentially universal suffrage. And Mott um, is appointed a vice president of that um, convention. But when um, the 14th Amendment is passed and when the 15th Amendment um, is being debated and is on the books with specifically language enfranchising men and not women, the American Equal Rights Association is divided, right? And some feminists say, you know, we have to include women. Other activists say, no, you know, this is the, you know, this is the Negro's hour, quote unquote, as Wendell Phillips would say, right? We have to work for this. And Mott was essentially in that latter position, right? That her priority in these years was the 15th Amendment. Of course, she supported the idea of women's suffrage. But when the women's rights movement split into two organizations over the 15th Amendment, um, the American Woman Suffrage Association and the National Woman Suffrage Association, both sides tried to claim Mott, right, tried to recruit Mott to their cause. And she was not she was not willing to become involved. And, and I think it literally made her a little bit 
ill. She suffered from poor digestion her whole life. But it really, every time Susan B. Anthony would come to our house and say, come on, you've got to come to this convention, she would literally get sick, you know, <laughs> um, that she, she couldn't stand this infighting between um, the, the different factions of the women's movement. She couldn't stand what Stanton and Anthony resorted to in this period, which was quite racist language to argue for women's suffrage. Um and so as a result, she uh, she still attended conventions. She still communicated with women's rights activists, but she really turned her attention to other other matters, mostly peace um, in this post-war period. Because she was a pacifist. She was a pacifist. As a beginning, as a, as a Quaker. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to know now is really get back to the original question. How, what's happened to Mott in the historiography and why has she become a cipher in American history? Let's. What do you think her legacy is that we can re, that you're trying to recover, and how can she be incorporated? I think in further study. Why is she important? What's the takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I, I think she um, has become a cipher because Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in many ways, who wrote the history of the women's movement, made her the sort of matriarch, right? The sort of the anti-slavery, um, the link with the anti-slavery movement for Stanton and the National Women's Suffrage Association. Uh, and so the National Women's Suffrage Association is birthed essentially from Lucretia Mott, right? And obviously the American Women's Suffrage Association would have something to say about this as well. Um, and so... She um, her, she be, she continues to be prominent, right? She's on the suffrage statue in the in the Capitol Rotunda with Stanton and Anthony, um, so she is a face of suffrage. But in some ways, that's quite ironic because suffrage was not her main cause. Really, it was slavery. Um, this is a cause that she was much more passionate about her whole life as as feminist as she was, and she was a feminist, she didn't believe that women's rights had the same urgency um, as ending slavery. And uh, so she spent much more time on the anti-slavery movement than on women's rights herself. But she's missing from that historiography. You know, you could read a book on the anti-slavery movement and barely a woman would be mentioned many times, right? And these are... Books written in the last few years, they won't mention a woman. Um, but also, um, oftentimes, they won't even mention Lucretia Mott because she's outside the center orbits of the anti-slavery movement, Boston, right? Or, um, uh, you know, sort of Western New York with Frederick Douglass and, and Rochester. So Philadelphia and Lucretia Mott and Quakers don't fit easily into this historiography, especially because... She doesn't believe in a political solution to slavery, and she doesn't believe in a violent solution to slavery. And so, so that's anywhere where the historiography is right now. Basically, what you're saying is she doesn't fit neatly into the liberal tradition, yeah. into that idea of liberal progress. Mm-hmm. She she's, she's kind of doesn't really fit into that. She's more of a moral, she believes in moral progress, mm-hmm. but not so much political progress. Uh, means for that. 
No. Yeah, and, and this is, I think, part of the reason for her uncomfortable relationship with the women's rights movement. As a Garrisonian abolitionist, as a moral suasionist, she doesn't believe in voting. I don't know if James Mott ever voted, right? She believes politics is corrupted by slavery. American politics was corrupted by slavery. And so when Elizabeth Cady Stanton at the Seneca Falls Convention raises the issue of voting rights, she says, Lizzie, that, that will make the convention ridiculous, right? Because she is not interested in gaining the right to vote herself, right? She believes it's corrupt. It's corrupting for voters. And so eventually she'll say, well, if men have this right, women should have this right too, but neither of them should use it. At this at this stage in American history, so she so, is she an anarchist? Or would you I mean would you put her in the category of an anarchist? Which to me, you know, it's, it's kind of a broad umbrella for people who who really kind of stand against the state or don't really want to validate the state in any way. Which voting does? Voting says you believe that the state exists and that you should participate in it. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to dr- describe her as an anarchist because she does believe in. You know, when she's working on pacifism after the Civil War, she does believe in international solutions, international arbitration, you know, to prevent war. So she believes in... That requires nations. Exactly. You know, that it requires government. It requires, you know, some level of political engagement. Um, but, uh, you know, so in some ways she's very much a Quaker, right? Other Quakers also believe that to participate in, in politics is... Uh, a compromise of your values and your morals, and so it's better to just remove yourself. So in that, she's a very typical Quaker in some ways. Um, she certainly believes in the overthrow of American slavery, you know, I think, um, and she's perfectly happy to, um, you know, she's revolutionary in that sense. When you talk about overthrow of American slavery, it's really not overthrow, it's the people to surrender it, to give it up as individuals. But also for it to, to um, uh, its power to be abolished as well, right? That the reason um, slave, the reason politics is problematic is because it, slavery is entrenched in the American political system, and American political power depends on the existence of slavery. So. Uh what do you think is the takeaway for the for people, to, the reader, both the academic reader and the general reader who reads your book? What is the takeaway? Uh, what is it the one thing you want them to know about Mott? I guess the, the one thing that I would like them to know is that she was not a quiet Quaker. She was not a gentle Quaker, um, that she was a radical, right, that she was a heretic and she was willing to be very confrontational and very um, belligerent about her views um, and to challenge what she viewed as injustices in American society. And hopefully what you've discovered or you've given us will be, work its way into other historiography. So maybe Lucretia Mott will not just be a name and a list of names, but will actually people will take her seriously and, and really think about what she did, her role. I hope so, and I and I hope that when you know this volume of her speeches and sermons comes out, um, you know it should be submitted to the presses, uh, the press later this year, that people will be able to engage more with her ideas, right? That she'll, they'll have 
something to draw on that is a record of her ideas in its historical con- in their historical context. So, yeah, because part of the problem with her, of course, is there's just not a lot of written. Like you know, Stanton just wrote and wrote and wrote, and we have so much to draw from. Yeah. Which kind of skews everything because Stan had her particular perspective. Okay, you've been very generous with your time, Carol, and I do have one final question, but I think maybe you just answered it. That what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, in, in addition to the volume of Mott's uh, speeches and sermons, I'm working on a volume called, tentatively called, uh, The End of Marriage, Adultery in the 19th Century. So after Mott's long and happy marriage, I decided I need some, needed some scandal to, to research. So it, it looks at how reformers are, uh, marriage reformers of different types, abolitionists, feminists, spiritualists, communitarians, free lovers, how they used adultery to reconceptualize marriage. And adultery being both an act and also a concept, you know, a, a, a theory of, of action. Well, thank you, Carol, and to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.